Hey y'all, two things. First, this one's gonna be explicit. We're talking about authenticity in hip-hop, and an argument can be made about if you have to use profanity to be authentic in hip-hop, but in this episode, we come down on the side of you have to if you're gonna talk about the history of hip-hop. So, be prepared. Second, if you want to get into the mindset of this episode, I'd start by watching the music video to True to the Game by Ice Cube. After you do that, my guest today is Professor Jeffrey Ogbar of UConn, and we're talking about his book, Hip Hop Revolution, The Culture and Politics of Rap. Fun fact, it was almost called True to the Game. Anyway, to start the discussion of authenticity in hip hop historically, I want to start with the origin story of hip hop. Because that is one of the questions of what hip-hop is supposed to be authentic to, is the time, place, and people who it started with. Short answer is that hip-hop begins in the South Bronx in the early 1970s. Roughly, the first hip-hop organization is formed in 1973. And you have poor and working-class Black and Latino youth primarily creating three of the four elements of hip-hop. The DJs first. DJ Cole Hurt would have parties and people come out and dance. And he realized as a DJ, it was hard for him to manipulate the records and also entertain the crowd as the DJ. So he got someone to help him out to get the crowd excited. And so this other DJ, like DJ Hollywood, would come in and he would shout out the crowd. And like, you know, y'all having fun out there? Everyone throw your hands in the air if you're having fun. Everyone likes to wave or something. He'll say, you know, uh, throw your hands in the air, wave like you just don't care. And people got really excited and having a call and response made the party even liver, right? And so that second DJ became known as the master of ceremonies. And people love how he was rapping to the people. And so this became the second element, the rapper. And then there were people who were at the clubs, at, the, at these parties, who were former gang members or, or still gang members or people who were certainly familiar, but people who were in some ways competing outside of violence. And the dancing became a competitive space for them. And they danced in crews. And different crews would compete against each other, breakdancer or b-boy or b-girl. Those people started to dance, compete in acrobatic styles. That became the third element. You have the three elements are all musical related. And then there's a separate element. Graffiti art actually emerged outside of the Bronx. It wasn't just in the Bronx among African-American Puerto Rican kids. And so it was later that that fourth element got fused to it, although we think of it as sort of like all coming together in 73. But certainly those three elements came together in 73 and it's at the first hip hop organization, which is called the Zulu Nation, which was formed in uh, 73. So that's that's the origin story of hip hop. Something that's really interesting about just the origins of hip hop, it was Black and Puerto Rican youth at the beginning. Hip hop is something that we kind of automatically associate with like Black masculinity, but it that's not actually where it came from. It's an art form that has been dominated by males from its inception up. There were non-African-American Black people. So there were Black folks like Paul Hurd himself, who was born in Jamaica. So he's non-African-American, but Black dude, Jamaican guy who came to the United States, became super familiar with African-American culture by his own admission. I quote him directly in the book where he said that, you know, I wasn't playing reggae or anything, although I was Jamaican. I was playing African-American music. I was playing James Brown. I was playing disco and soul music. And this is what is a sort of the fundamental cultural core of hip hop. The dance styles, you have Puerto Ricans who are really central to B-boy, B-girling, 
in uh, in New York City, and there's a well-documented history, and also MCs who were Puerto Ricans as well, and a lot of graffiti artists who were Puerto Ricans. And so Puerto Ricans were essential. Other Anglophone Caribbeans were uh, essential to the development of hip-hop, and although it was male-dominated, it was not misogynistic, and sort of the, the sexism that we see in hip-hop now, endemic in hip-hop, where universally there has not been an adult male rapper to go platinum without having an album that referred to him as bitches and hoes. Macklemore comes close, but he actually had Schoolboy Q as a guest rapper who called him and hoes or bitches, one of the two, on uh, on his album. But but back in the day, you know, no one referred to women in those terms. And it didn't mean that they were, you know, all feminists or anything. I grew up in a period when like Rakim or Run DMC or others, the hottest rappers just didn't refer to women in those terms. And when they did, NWA, I have to explain this real fast, but NWA, young people, because they saw the movie Straight Outta Compton, which came out in 2015, a lot of young people associate NWA with being a political, pro-Black, almost Black nationalist revolutionary group. And NWA was not that at all. They're the opposite of that. Like Public Enemy was that group that they imagined NWA being, right? NWA was very clear we are nihilistic gangsters who prey upon Black people primarily, but we don't care anything about Black people's freedom. My students are like, well, Professor Ogbar, what about fuck the police? I'm like, well, let's take Charles Manson, for example, right? You know, a, a murderer. Like, if you ask Charles Manson or Al Capone or somebody, like, you know, what do you think about the police? They'd be like, fuck the police. But it doesn't mean that they're, like, for the liberation of oppressed people. You know, just because they're criminals, and by nature, criminals are hostile to the police, right? And so... I don't think that uh, that my students have sort of gotten it twisted. So if you look at the lyrics where on Gangster Gangster, Easy e and NWA, they talk about all their gangster activities. And at the moment when Black people are dying at historic rates from homicides and murders in the Black community, and you have some rappers who are talking out against this, and they're talking about freeing Black people and having Black people imagine a world where they can escape cycles of violence, NWA leans into it. And they and, and Easy e says, fuck a car. I do a motherfucking walk by. What about the girl that got shot? Fuck her. I don't give a fuck about a bitch. I ain't a sucker. So he's very clear. Like, even when a black girl gets, gets killed, is really a contemptuous expression for black life. And until NWA came out, I did not hear constant rotation of antipathy to women, which is strange. And it and it's also, in the context of black expressive art, this is anomalous. If you look at how black people have created music, they've been largely about love. So you think about from Marvin Gaye, Luther Vandross, New Edition, Stevie Wonder, Sam Cooke. You go all the way back. I mean, there are narratives of narratives for generations of people talking about falling in love, heartbreak, reconciliation, pining for someone. You know, contempt is really anomalous. And I think that it's not an authentic expression of Black culture. So when you think about the evolution of it all, that male-dominated space, when you made reference to the masculine thing, it's always been male-dominated, but it hasn't been misogynistic. That is a an element that got fused into hip-hop after it already become commercial. So one of the questions of authenticity when it comes to hip-hop is, is it truly Black art or is it a new form of minstrelsy? Which is like a really interesting question that comes up. For your viewers, listeners who may not be familiar with menstrual shows or menstruacy in the generation right before the Civil War, so 1840s, 1850s, there emerged a form of entertainment known as a menstrual show where primarily white artists, the vast majority of the white artists in the North 
they were black in their faces and they would perform actually beginning in streets, just like on street corners with a, a box or something where people would toss pennies in or something. They would dance in the street, acting in buffoonish, comical ways with little routines. Ultimately, that became the minstrel show. It became institutionalized. It went into theaters. People made money. It was, it was America's first popular culture. So before this, you have culture from Europe that came here that white Americans enjoyed in the institutionalized theatrical form. And there was a minstrel show that became the first American expression of what we call popular culture. And Black people were centered, not because these were real Black people, but the mockery of Blackness. It was a caricature of what Black people were into the imagination of, of white Americans. That was a packaged, commercial, fanciful version of Blackness marketed to a non-Black audience, right? So now when people look at hip-hop, some people, and I would argue, in fact, I would say this without equivocation, that there's a component of hip-hop now that is a veritable minstrel show, right? So the fixation, for example, on the celebration of, of Black death, of misogyny, the sort of almost predatory relationship between men and women, that, that amorous, healthy love can exist. It's always about, I will take your bitch, I will fuck your bitch, fuck you, nigga, you're a bitch-ass nigga, I'll I be shooting these niggas, I'll be running through these hoes. All the most coarse, vulgar expressions of what I imagine a racist would believe Black people are like, right? And my argument is that if you look at hip-hop's evolution, this is this gets to the point about authenticity, that and the late 1980s, as hip hop was penetrating the mainstream, becoming more and more popular, they reached a, a critical point around 1990. MTV launched UMTV Raps. BET had Rap City. The Source magazine was founded. The Grammys acknowledged rap for the first time. Radio stations across the United States start to play rap music in regular rotation. We start to have concerts like arena tours. Run DMC would have straight up arenas, which is a big deal. And I just knew it small venues. And so as, as hip hop became mainstream, the core consumers of hip hop, primarily African-Americans, were no longer just the core consumers. It really ballooned and it went out to majority you know, white communities. And then, which is all good, right? Like soul music before it, like rock and roll before it, like jazz before it, right? But then what happened with hip hop is that hip hop had always been, to some extent, it had an anti-authoritarian underground feel to it always. And when it got acknowledged by the Grammys for the first time, the Grammys decided not to even air the show of the awards to, to the rappers because of the rap category, because they thought rap was so marginal as an art form, they would do it at lunchtime and then just tell people who won, right? So they were not televised. The, the rap nominees, to me, I, I believe to their credit, they were like, we're not going to show up the war show. Will Smith was part of this, like DJ Jazzy Jeff and uh, the Fresh Prince. They were like, we're not going to go to a war show and be dissed like that. So, you know, we won't even show up at the Grammys and we'll have our own party, which I think is really cool that they were like, even at that point, someone that we don't even think of as being particularly anti-authoritarian, like all the rappers were like, you know, F y'all. We want to, we'll have our own party. So hip hop has already been like, you know, like to quote Jay-Z, we didn't go to the mainstream. The mainstream came to us. And when you look at also Run DMC, when they came out with King of Rock, their video shows them going into the Rock and Roll Museum, which will ultimately be like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So when Run DMC walks into this, in this video, there's a guy, a guard, security guard who looks at run DMC. And they say, you can't come in here. You don't belong here. This is a rock and roll museum. He starts laughing in the face. And run DMC at that point, like these gatekeepers of mainstream pop culture, and this video does this, instead of run DMC saying, oh man, forget you, I'm going to go home and go to sleep. 
They move the dude to the side and walk in anyway and declare, I'm the king of rock. There is none higher. Sucker MCs will call me sire. And they, they go through this whole thing, this video, where they take all these icons of rock and roll and diss them, right? Throw Michael Jackson's glove on the ground and step on it. Take Elton John's glasses and break them. You know, they do all these things. But they're like, we go on our own terms where we want to go. And we don't kowtow to your egos or the mainstream. Now, let's fast forward to 1990. In 1990, two rappers blew away all the rappers in the history of, of rap music and performed more than most people of any genre of music, MC Hammer and Vanilla Ice. And when these two rappers had come out with extraordinary mainstream success, like running circles over the most successful rappers before, they outsold every rapper for years until Tupac had come around which is crazy. Like your favorite rappers had never sold as much as those two dudes did. And when they came out, there was a huge backlash from the hip hop community. And people thought that well, they, they started to call this bubblegum rap. If you just rapped about partying and dancing and had no real social substance or anything, they were dismissed as inauthentic bubblegum rappers that you sold out to the mainstream. And you have two rap styles that are completely authentic. The Public enemy style of anti-authoritarian black radicalism comes out of what I call the black radical tradition. They literally quote everyone from Nat Turner to Asada Shakur, Malcolm X, the Black Panther Party. When they talk about the police coming for them, they're coming for them because they come out of the tradition of Nat Turner. The police were coming after Nat Turner. The police came after Asada Shakur. The police came after the Black Panther Party. The police came after Malcolm X, right? The state hated all those people because they were trying to free black people. NWA came out that same year, Straight Outta Compton came out when they talk about the police coming at them, when he says, I got a crime record like Charles Manson, when Ice Cube says that, or when they talk about uh, seeing a crowd and suddenly I see some niggas that I don't like. And they start you know, beating up black people or taking a shotgun and blasting to a crowd of black people and the police are coming after them. They're coming after them not because they're trying to free black people, because they're engaged in criminal activity, destroying black life and the state is doing what it does. Right. They prosecute and pursue criminals. So you have two different sort of styles. When you think about the larger market, and this is this is important here, the larger market, if people really want to appreciate hip hop and then not be seen as corny or whack, and an artist wants to be viable and record labels want to sell cool hip hop, you had really two expressions that were considered viable, the black radical tradition or the thug gangster tradition. And when you think about a market that's mostly non-black, that's mostly white, would they be comfortable hearing references to, you know, listen to, uh, to Ice Cube. So he has a line where he says, I'm the one with the one mile scope taking Whitey's throat, right? And he talks about having a one mile scope gun with a long one rifle. He says in one song, he says, I'm killing more crackers in Bosnia, Herzegovina, which was a civil war in Europe, Eastern Europe at the time, caused white devils and crackers and all that kind of stuff. Peck of Woods. He has a video where police officers are being killed. When you have that sort of thing going on, that clearly was not commercially as viable as Snoop saying, rat-a-tat-tat, I never hesitate to put a nigga on his back, right? And so when you have songs where there was death involved and you have Black life being killed, like Snoop and NWA, or you have elements of the state being killed, you know, corrupt and racist police officers and politicians, you had two of these things going on at the same time. One group, this is the public enemy group, they had a song called By the Time I Get to Arizona, they were killing corrupt and racist police officers, not r random white people. They weren't killing random white people. If anyone died, they were racist, corrupt law enforcement or representatives of the state. That video got banned 
Public Enemy fell off. Public Enemy, you can see them in rotation. Uh, record label dropped IC with a, a, a rock group called Body Count and a song called Cop Killer. A rapper named Paris had, out of the Bay Area had a song called Bush Killer where he's talking about President George Herbert Walker Bush. Ice Cube, unprecedented uh, denunciation from Billboard magazine. Never in the history of Billboard magazine had they ever denounced an artist ever. You had protests about all these artists. You had people, you had whole law enforcement agencies suing Tupac because he had a song about playing police. But Snoop or Dr. Dre, when they talk about putting a gun in a nigga's mouth and having him plead for his life, didn't get banned. Literally, they were able to take certain a certain life value was measured to be valued more than other lives. And hip hop, when you look at the mainstream now, I'm not saying there should be songs about killing racists uh, any, of any sort, right? But it's conspicuous that uh, those do not exist. Unless someone can tell me there are songs, I don't even know songs with people talking about killing Klansmen or Nazis or anything. I don't even know those songs exist. They used to exist, right? I'm not going to quote Ice Cube has a line where he says, uh, turn that white sheep into a red cloth. So it's very conspicuous about how hip hop how it's become a sort of platform for promoting the most pernicious, hostile, anti-Black stereotypes out there. And I would say that hip-hop in its commercial forms, not every artist, of course, but much of its commercial forms have been reduced to anti-woman, anti-Black lyrics. I tell my students that I could be wrong, so always let me know. Maybe I'm overlooking something. I know I sound like one of these like old fogies. I tried it. I tried my best to resist it. I kept going. I was like, I don't want to be that dude. Like back in my day, hip hop was good, but uh, here I am. <laughs> Actually, that's I love, a, that's I, the like, okay, theme my, of your book. Is that like everyone has a very strong opinion about? It's a very it's a yeah. genre that just brings out strong feelings. You know, and I think it's a beautiful thing because I like the fact that people find such joy in music. I, mean, I don't hear people debating over like the top five in R&B. Like, I don't, I don't hear those debates, right? And then, but I could always start a debate about top five. I could talk about, I could have a debate about eras where people will pull up their phones and start going through, oh man, look at 1988. Uh, no, I look at 1998 and then like to 96. I've seen people, we've had conversations with friends where people are going over like, what year had like the dopest MCs drop, right? Like the best albums come out. And there's a sort of like akin to sports. It's like a, a space of leisure, but sort of an intellectual investment also in the quality of the art, the quality of that entertainment. And people really get into it. And I think it's a beautiful thing. I enjoy it. Minstrelsy is kind of, I guess, a grossly exaggerated version of like Black behavior. And in a way, rap has become that going commercial, pushed rap that way. The money going towards it was coming from a lot of white people and the taste for it wasn't for conscious rap about like social issues. And it was for the most kind of violent and sexist version of the art form. Yes, that's well said. I don't expect hip hop to be all like the power. And for your, your viewers, in 1989, Public Enemy had a song called Fight the Power. And so it's a surprise of a lot of people. I mean, if you watch the video, it really shows you how popular what now we would think of conscious rap was, where you have a hit album that is really about freeing Black people and fighting the power. You know, they curse and everything. Uh, they don't call women bitches and hoes. They don't celebrate killing niggas. That's not their thing. And I heard someone say one time that if one is to engage in violence against uh, somebody, that there's an attendant 
language to express your emotional vitriol. Instead of like referring to black people as like brothers or black people or black women or sisters, it becomes, you know, or like kings or queens, it becomes niggas and bitches. Language that's shifted away from anything that's uh, like affirming of black life and it becomes sort of mainstream. That's it. So if you if you look at Fight the Power, I think it was really wonderful. I don't think that everything in hip hop has to be political. I don't think everything has to be sort of like, you know, elevated music. I like party music, too. I even would say that the highest level of artistry that I think I've seen in hip hop, period, was My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy with um, Kanye. And that album is, is a masterful, lush, just amazing album. And I think that hip hop is vast and capacious enough to include things that are not just solely political all the time. Like, you know, fighting the power is cool, but we also just like to have fun and enjoy life and celebrate the complexities of life and love and heartbreak and everything else. And, and hip hop does a lot of that, but I just wish that it was not so narrowly constricted in commercial form. So what we see now. That's kind of been a theme of black culture for a long time is like, wanting it to have the freedom to encompass a wide range of what black people are. Okay, I want to talk about women. You got to talk about women. Yes. The whole chapter, it is super interesting. Women, wherever they are in hip hop, at whatever stage, wherever moment in hip hop, they tend to reflect the social political currents of that time. So MC Light, for example, in the late 80s, early 90s, her style was typical of the style of hip hop at that time. You know, she was not hypersexual person like most hip-hop if you look in the late late 80s early 90s like you know most hip-hop wasn't hypersexual it was about being an ill MC, and it wasn't like they never talked about sex or anything but it just wasn't as, as central and then when you get to queen latifah she comes out of a period when hip-hop had started to take this turn towards more political conscious rap and of course she adopts a name her name is dana owens she has a european name you know dana owens but she adopts the name Latifah, right? And calls herself a queen. And then she dons a crown. And then she has Afghan print fabric that she, she rocks. And she says, ladies first, that video is amazing. Like, you know, she's celebrating women. She's celebrating feminism. She celebrates Black women all around the world. She looks at Wendy Mandela in South Africa, the anti-apartheid movement. She has Angela Davis. She has all sorts of amazing women in that video. That's a really fantastic exploration and celebration of Black women and feminism. And even a sort of global perspective. And then by the, if you jump up in a few more years, by 96, you have Foxy Brown and Lil' Kim. And they come out of the period when, when rappers had leaned towards, I'm a, I'm a gangster, I'm a thug, organized crime type of gangster. So in the mid-90s, mid and late 90s, you start to have people who idealize Italian mobsters, right? They started calling themselves like Nas Escobar, like my man Jay-Z when he first comes out. And reasonable doubt, like, you know, he's rocking the suit. You know, he his whole thing is like, like, I'm a mafia don and I engage in criminal activity. And then Lil' Kim and Foxy Brown come out of that. Like, I'm a murderous mommy. She refers to herself as. And they see themselves attached to the firm, like the ladies of the firm. And they kind of lean into that sort of style. And then, of course, when you get to, which I think is interesting about Lauren Hill, which makes her so different, is that the, like the Fugees in 94, 96, she comes out of this, you know, she's she's one third of this group and their aesthetic is not gangster. And they're very clear. I'm not out here. I'm not an organized crime figure selling crack. I'm not selling big loads of cocaine and heroin and murdering black people. I'm not necessarily a radical either. I'm not in the tradition of Nat Turner or Huey Newton or Bobby Seale and the Black Panther Party and Angela Davis. Right. 
I'm not in that line either. They actually were able to carve out something that was their own lane, kind of like what Outkast would do later and what Kanye would do later. They have like their own lane that simultaneously got authenticity and radio play. And people like them, even though they were neither of the two sort of lanes that had dominated hip hop. And when Hill comes out, like she still carves her own lane in 98. You know, she's like produces, arranged, composed, wrote her own lines, did amazing. She had production assistance, of course, as we will later find out. But, you know, she was the first rapper in history to get album of the year. You know, she was the first woman in history to get five Grammys at one show. So she did things that no rapper had ever done. She did things that no woman of any genre had ever done. Lauren Hill is really just a raises the bar in so many important ways. But then, you know, we have a fall off, right? Until Missy Elliott, early 2000s. Missy Elliott, she was not like any of the others. She wasn't like the super sexual person. She was a straight party MC. Timbaland was a great producer. She had that so that whole aesthetic. And, you know, it wasn't until it gets Nicki uh, Minaj, you know, it took like about a good 10 years or so before another woman. So you had a dry spell in terms of women MCs. Uh, and Nicki comes out, like Pete Friday, or she blows up. And I always say this about Nikki is that when you hear Monster, you know, with like Kanye, Rick Ross, Jay-Z, and she comes in as like the cleanup batter. She comes in with the last verse. Oh my God. And she just, she dominates it. She's with these heavyweights and she doesn't even have an album out. Like even in her line, it's like 50K for versus no album out. But she is like, she's an amazing MC. And so she was able to demonstrate her on the as a lyricist with like these hip hop heavyweights before her album dropped. Of course, Pink Friday went platinum. And so she, I think since her expression and her success, I think it opened the doors for women after a dry spell. It's been a, a really kind of interesting history. And I think that if you look at sort of Megan or Cardi B and others like now, they, I would say, sort of adhere to the general aesthetic of hip hop at this moment. Okay. So this is really interesting part of your book where you talk about rap does challenge traditional beauty standards because the beauty standard in rap videos are black women. And even like you talk about <laughs> Sir Mix a lot and like big butts are also frequently talked about. Like it shifts what the standard of beauty is in a popular form of art. Yeah. So I'll tell a story in the, had to be maybe early nineties. I was in graduate school and I was working out at the gym and there was a, a woman I was seeing the gym and I would, you know, say hello to her and we talk and everything. And then one day we were working out and she was doing squats and she was like, yeah, you know, I got to do squats. You know, every woman wants a flat butt. And I repeated that story to a friend. My friend started laughing because it was just so bizarre, like that every woman wants a flat butt. And for her aesthetic, she was a white woman. In her aesthetic in that lane in the early 90s, that was, I'm sure that was the thing. They wanted a flat butt. And. 99% of black men in the United States of America and throughout the world, I would estimate this is completely not, not scientific here, but <laughs> I would say that 99% of white people, not that they're unaffected by European standards of beauty and this imposition of these sorts of standards through all sorts of machinations, but they that that's an, that's an, that's a way drawn the line, right? If you listen to music created by people of African descent globally and they talk about physical attributes. A large buttocks has always been celebrated everywhere. You look at like Latin America, even the dance styles they accentuate the butt. Like the, so there's been a lot that has been said about how hip hop is 
misogynistic and sexist and all that kind of stuff. And that's true. And I think that people have a hard time dissociating the celebration of Black beauty without the celebration of Black women. And that's why I put it this way, that if you look at Western civilization, Europeans, right? Westerners have for a thousand plus years, 2000 years, more than that, had sculptures of women they thought were beautiful that celebrate the beauty of women that they did not think should have the right to vote. So th- there's, there's nothing incongruent with like saying, this is what I find physically beautiful, but not that this person is my equal. Societies all around the world have created songs, dances, sculptures to celebrate their particular aesthetic and what they think to be beautiful. Hip hop is no different. And despite what people say, Again, the book came out in many years ago, but at that time, I look at videos. I'm like, you know, people say that they certainly aren't celebrating white women, right? Uh, but if you, mostly black women and some Latinas, they range in color. They were dark skin, brown skin, light skin, all had big booties. And I look at um, also some Vibe magazine had a video Vixen Award where they gave, they let, let readers vote on who they wanted. And the women they chose, like Esther Baxter, you know, the brown skin woman, uh, Ketoy Johnson was a dark-skinned woman. Buffy the Body, back in the day, any, any viewers here who remember the early 2000s, Buffy the Body was a dark-skinned woman with you know full features and everything. You look at Outcast video, I like the way you move. They have Ketoy Johnson in the video, uh, dark-skinned woman with big booty. I mean, so the, the ideal, like these are guys who are like, I, I ride a G, back then, G4. Like I ride a Gulf Stream 4 airplane. I have inordinate amounts of money. I have millions of dollars. I can buy everything. I have a rolls. I have everything I want in life. I can have any woman I want. And the woman they always have would be black women, right? Is notable and never in the history of American pop culture has mainstream celebrated black women. And there's no way you get around hip hop being mainstream. I mean, it is. It is. If it outsells every other genre of music, I can't imagine. If it's not mainstream, then no genre of music is mainstream. There's no such thing as mainstream music if hip hop is the dominant art form. And then you have at the center of it, like what's considered the, the ideal beauty, they've had black women. And there's nuance to be said about how black women are depicted. The book came out like 15 years ago. Any parting thoughts thinking about it years later? I would say that my my favorite artists, believe it or not, are more recent artists. I mean, so although I, I sound like an old curmudgeon, I, I think there's no debate of like Kendrick being like the greatest of all time. And a lot of people tend to get people from when they were in their teens and 20s, and they kind of romanticize art in that period of music. But I love, I love, I mean, I think also there are people like Jay Cole, whom I love. And I think the most, one of the most underrated MCs is Charles Gambino. Yeah, I would have to say that in the last 10 years, I've seen the highest level of hip hop in many ways come about, even though I'm talking about the smack. But those artists that I'm talking about aren't the ones who fixate on Black death, though, too. You know, so that's another thing. There's so much of it that hip hop, I think, does better than any other genre of music. And, uh, and I even think how it explores love and its complexities is often very sophisticated. So I hope to explore some of those things, too. The book, I have been in a conversation with the press to uh, have a second edition to come out. And so we're in the process of coming up with a second edition that will be an expanded version built upon the first one. So every chapter would be expanded and there'll be an entirely new chapter on how hip hop engages mental health. And so every single chapter, so all the things we've just talked about will have to be updated late 2024 at the earliest. 
Thank you for coming on my show, Professor. Hey, it was a pleasure, Brooklyn. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening, y'all. And thanks for continuing to spread the word about this show. It's truly making a difference. All power to all people, y'all. <laughs>